that Triathlon Show 257. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Mark Burnley. Mark is an exercise physiologist at the University of Kent, and his main research interests include oxygen uptake kinetics, or VO2 kinetics, which has really important implications for how to design optimal warm-ups before races in particular. Uh, it can be the difference between winning and losing, at least in, in more intense, shorter races. But even for things like triathlons, where the swim start can usually be pretty hard, this is uh, an important topic that we'll get into. We'll also discuss critical power, which is uh, another area where Mark has done a lot of research. And uh, this is the transition point, or more correctly, the transition area between the heavy and the severe exercise domains. And uh, because of the non-steady-state nature of exercising above critical power, uh, this also has significant importance in a large number of training and racing applications that we'll get into in the interview. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration has developed an online sweat test, which is simply a questionnaire that you can fill out in just a few minutes, and it will give you a great ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat, and that will then also automatically generate a racing plan that you can use for how you should hydrate during your races. And this is something that I highly recommend to do as uh, to get a bit of a, a benchmark or a starting point for your own experimentation. And that's also how Precision Hydration, and if you listen to my interviews with Andy Blow, what he recommends doing, then you should always experiment on yourself and try to fine-tune your plan and make sure that it's dialed in. And uh, that requires some, some trial and error, but to get that great starting point, Go and take PH's uh, free sweat test and uh, maybe even try their electrolyte products to match your sweat sodium content. You can get 15% off of them with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And uh, as I record this, when you listen to this, it will be a bit later, but I'm recording this in uh, just after uh, Kona was scheduled to go ahead, the Ironman World Championships. And uh, swimskins is something that is obviously of great importance in non-wetsuit swims. And Roka has done unofficial swimskin counts in the professional races for many, many years. And uh, Roka have been leading the way in terms of the number of uh, professionals using their Viper swimskin versus any other manufacturer. So uh, again, that's uh, just testament to the quality of Roka's products that when pros are actually using them in the big on the biggest stage whether it's swimskins or any other product line that uh, interests you you can shop around and have a look and uh, you can get 20 percent off of your entire roca order uh, with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with dr mark burnley Welcome to that Traflon show, Mark. How are you doing? 
Yeah, not too bad at all. You are a researcher that has worked a lot with uh, two topics they will cover today, VO2 kinetics and uh, critical power. Uh, but uh, before we get into th- those topics, can you start by just giving uh, an introduction to yourself and talk a little bit more about your background? Yeah, so uh, I'm an exercise physiologist at the University of Kent, um, and I did my undergraduate and uh, PhD training at the University of Brighton, uh, supervised by Professor Joe Doust and Professor Andy Jones. Um, And that's where I really got into VO2 kinetics and the critical power concept. Uh, As an undergraduate and as as a postgraduate, I was really keen on running and cycling, and I was a member of the triathlon club. Uh, So I was really interested in trying to relate what I was learning scientifically to actual performance and what it all meant. So that was, that's what really drove me into into the field. But as time went on, I got more and more into the science uh, and understanding what, what the body's really doing. So uh, that's that's uh, my, my major uh, interest. And following that, I moved to Aberystwyth to set up a new department with Joe Doust. And that allowed me to work alongside the Iswith Cycling Club, who supplied an awful lot of the participants when I was working on things like um, the priming exercise, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later on, and also developing methods of determining critical power. So, uh, and then uh, when when was it? it? Must have been 2012. There was an opportunity came up at the University of Kent. They were just bringing up a uh, a new endurance research group, and that sounded really exciting. So I came here, and that's where I started working a lot more on neuromuscular uh, fatigue and things of that nature. So looking at how, uh, in relation to various metabolic thresholds, how um, how the fatigue processes work within. And, and around those metabolic thresholds. So that's really what I've been focusing on in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, perfect. That's a, a great introduction. And uh, you mentioning there how to apply the science in uh, in the real world, uh, that's something that we'll try to do throughout this episode as well. So let's start with VO2 kinetics, and perhaps you can give a definition and uh, tell us what it really means and how it's relevant for uh, for endurance performance. Yes, well, VO2 kinetics is is one of the, the parameters of aerobic performance, if you like. And uh, it really, at its most basic level, it's the shape that the oxygen uptake response to exercise takes. So when you start from rest or from very low intensity exercise and then increase your pace, whether that be on swimming, cycling, running, uh, up to the level that you want to get to, up to race pace. How does the oxygen uptake response occur? What does it look like? What are the uh, phases that it goes through? And what's the physiology underneath each of those phases? And how does that relate to things like fatigue and performance is what we're really interested in. So if we take it right back to, if you like, the early days of physiology, you might have heard of the oxygen deficit and the oxygen debt concept that was brought to uh, prominence by A.V. Hill in the 1920s. And essentially, that was, uh, you know, it uses, uh, if you like, financial terms to talk about paying for certain types of energy. So as you start exercise, your oxygen uptake doesn't immediately increase to meet the energy demand. So there's a delay between starting exercise and reaching what we call this steady state where all of your energy in the form of ATP is essentially being resynthesized by aerobic metabolism through the consumption of oxygen. 
And it takes about two to three minutes to reach that steady state under normal circumstances. And so if you think about the area above that curve, so when you start running, let's say you start running at 16 kilometers per hour, your energy demand immediately increases to the requirement to run at 16 kilometers per hour. But it takes two to three minutes for your oxygen uptake response to reach that level. And so throughout that phase of the oxygen deficit, as we call it, you're getting the extra energy from sources not requiring the consumption of molecular oxygen. In other words, anaerobic metabolism. And there's really two broad uh, energy systems that are involved there. The first is the breakdown of uh, phosphocreatine, or you might have heard it called creatine phosphate, uh, which is where that uh, splits off a, a phosphate uh, ion. And as a result of that, the energy release is then used to resynthesize ATP directly through a thing called creatine kinase. And then you have the uh, anaerobic glycolysis, we might call it, which is the breakdown of uh, various sugar compounds to lactate. And there's some energy release there. And essentially, that's the opening step of um, aerobic metabolism as well is to, to start breaking down things like glycogen or glucose um, in order to then ultimately put it through the mitochondria and, and consume oxygen. But you can also release energy. And in some cases, you have to release energy by breaking uh, the carbohydrate down to lactate. That can then um, essentially disappear into the blood and you can measure that in a blood sample and see if your lactate's been elevated. Um, and that you often see that even it doesn't really matter what exercise intensity you're doing. If you measure lactate repeatedly just after exercise starts, there'll usually be a little bit of a rise and then it might fall down again. Or if you're doing very high intensity exercise, it will stay elevated or it might keep accumulating. Um, so what we're really talking about with VO2 kinetics is the shape of the curve that brings you up to that steady state value where energy demand is being met by aerobic metabolism. There is a, an extra bit of complication in that, though, because we don't always reach a steady state. So when we exercise above the lactate threshold, where we'd expect to see a steady state, oxygen uptake doesn't stabilize. It actually carries on rising as a function of time. And that rise, it happens about 10 times slower than the initial rise in oxygen uptake. And that's why we call that the slow component. So we have a habit of calling the early phase up to where we would expect to see a steady state. We call that the fast component. And then the subsequent phase, the slowly rising VO2 that occurs above the lactate threshold, that's what we call the slow component. And they both have very different determinants. So the fast component seems to be related to uh, essentially the, the, the switch on of the aerobic system. And then that's related to the breakdown of phosphocreatine. So that, that essentially is, is part of the control mechanism there. Whereas the slow component, we're still not entirely sure what causes that. Uh, there's been various ideas, but probably the main one that's been focused on is the recruitment of additional muscle fibers. So as you continue exercise at relatively high intensity, some of the fibers that you initially recruited start to tire, start to fatigue. And as a result, you need to bring more in to help with that workload. And the problem with that is that if you're going to recruit more fibers, that's going to require more oxygen. And as a result, your oxygen uptake will carry on rising. All right, perfect. That, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot of information, but uh, let's hope that we, we have everybody with us. The one thing that I want to 
sort of uh, try to pin down here is is there such a thing as a good and a bad uh, shape of the curve uh, when we're talking about VO2 kinetics? Uh, so we get the, the O2 deficits uh, and uh, use anaerobic energy during the early part after starting exercising at a high intensity. So that uh, would uh, presumably mean that if you can quickly get your your oxygen uptake to match the energy demands, it is better because the anaerobic energy production is um, in many ways more costly uh, than, uh, than than the aerobic energy production. So, so is the ideal really that you want to quickly get up to that steady state and you want the shape of the curve to be a rapid increase, as rapid as possible, to, to meet the energy demands? Yes, that's a really interesting question. There's been an awful lot of research done on that, as you might imagine. Um, Interestingly, when we try to look for interventions to speed up the uh, fast component, there aren't actually that many that are effective. So um, we know that if you do endurance training, it doesn't really doesn't seem to matter what kind of endurance training you do, uh, whether that's you know, high volume, low intensity training, or if you do uh, you know, high high intensity interval training, you can usually speed up the fast component kinetics. So what, what that essentially means is you get less of an oxygen deficit, you reach a steady state sooner. And we know that very, very highly trained athletes can reach a steady state in perhaps as little as one minute. So we've seen some data from Paula Radcliffe when she was at her fittest and, and she and Andy Jones measured her on a treadmill running at 16 kilometers per hour. And what we saw there was that she very, very rapidly reached a steady state. Now, whether that's because of training or because of a, a genetic predisposition to fast VO2 kinetics, we don't know. But we do know that training interventions can speed that up. We also know that um, interventions that alter muscle metabolism can, in principle, speed up the VO2 kinetics. But a lot of them are either very, very difficult to do in humans or perhaps even impossible. Um, or are so invasive that nobody would really want to do them anyway. Um, so one example is you can actually um, inhibit uh, nitric oxide synthase, and that will speed up the VO2 kinetics. But the problem with that is you have to infuse that. Uh, you have to infuse the drug for that, and that doesn't really work very well. And it also reduces blood flow. So it will actually reduce your VO2 max if you do that. And that has other knock-on effects for, for high-intensity exercise. So that, that's not a great idea. The other thing that's been done, interestingly, is to inhibit the enzyme involved in breaking down phosphocreatine. And that speeds up the VO2 kinetics as well. But the problem with that is you get very, very big swings in ATP concentration and very severe muscle fatigue if you do that. So again, that's not something that's ever going to be performance enhancing. So really and truthfully, the, the most effective way of speeding up the VO2 kinetics is through endurance training. Uh, and that's, that's where we're, from a practical perspective, where we're kind of stuck. All right. Yeah. So, so generally speaking, the fitter you get, it doesn't ma matter much what kind of endurance training you do to get yourself fitter, but the fitter you get, the faster yeah. your fast component gets. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out that um, when we try and speed up the VO2 kinetics, we can never eliminate the oxygen deficit. It's always, it's always, you know, perhaps uh, 
takes a minute or two minutes to get to that steady state. And, and what that's kind of telling us is that it's absolutely essential to have that balance between aerobic and anaerobic metabolism, because what the phosphocreatine breakdown system does is actually buy the body time to adjust to exercise. So you don't get these huge swings in uh, requirements for blood flow and things like that. By having that energy buffer in the muscle, it means you've got a little bit of time to get up to speed. And that is actually a helpful thing rather than a hindrance. Yeah, and, and I think that practically speaking, everybody can, if you think to some training you've done where you go out really fast in a in a race, for example, in the swim in a sprint distance triathlon, and, and you go all out the first 10 seconds, they just fly by automatically almost. You you don't feel that you mm. need to, to really work, and that's presumably the time that you're using your phosphocreatine system a lot uh, yeah. predominantly and and then as time goes goes on you start to feel that oh your breathing rate is going up a lot your heart rate is going up a lot and this can be applied to a bike interval session or a run interval session or what, whatever you want but but basically there is a de- that delay between when your breathing rate and your heart rate is really going up and you start to feel that you're working super hard whereas in the very early parts of of a hard effort you don't really feel it as much Yeah. Yeah. And it's also amusing when you're watching um, the interviews of sprinters at the end of a track race where they come straight off the track and they start talking, they they start breathing very hard. And that's because you've obviously developed a a very, very large oxygen deficit while you do that sprint. And it's only after the sprint do you actually have to repay that. And you repay that by increasing oxygen uptake, increasing ventilation, etc. And that's when the interviewer turns up and sticks a microphone in your face and you can't actually get the words out anymore. So I find that an amusing uh, an amusing way of physiology intervening in uh, public relations. Mm, definitely. So we talked about interventions for the, the fast component. What about the, the slow component? And uh, do we want to basically minimize how much the, the slow component will uh, will keep oxygen uptake to to go up is is that sort of the ideal situation and what can we do to achieve that uh ideally yes so i mean again uh endurance training will reduce the amplitude of slow components so then that's very simply because your your muscles are obviously they're able to endure more and therefore they will, will fatigue less and therefore there's less demand for, for the slow components to develop the other thing you can do, of course, is uh, priming exercise. So doing prior heavy exercise before your your main bout of exercise, that will also reduce the slow component. But it does that actually by increasing the, the fast component. So the fast component rises to a higher level and then the slow component rises to a lower level. And you end up essentially with the same oxygen uptake at the end of exercise. And we think that, again, is because at the start of exercise, you're recruiting more muscle fibers at the beginning than you normally would do and so the the work rate is shared across a larger number of fibers to start with and that reduces the requirement for a slow component to develop the slow component is also interesting though because it it behaves differently whether you're above or below the critical power which we'll we'll talk about a little bit later on but above the uh the um critical power the slow component does not stabilize and so as a result of that, it doesn't really matter what, you're, what you do beforehand. Eventually, the slow component will rise until maximal oxygen uptake is reached. And at that point, you've got maybe a few minutes left before you're going to have to either slow down or stop. So we know that, that that is always the case. And so 
there's there's an interaction in terms of what sort of interventions might work to uh, either develop the slow component or improve performance. Because if you have an intervention that increases VO2 max and it doesn't change anything about the VO2 kinetics, what that will do is cause the slow component amplitude to increase because the slow component now has more room to develop. That will increase performance. But interestingly, you see an increased performance with an increased slow component. And it's not because anything's happened to the VO2 kinetics. It's because the VO2 max has been increased. So, for example, if you um, breathe um, a, a gas high in oxygen, uh, that will increase your maximal oxygen uptake. It may not do much to the VO2 kinetics, but it will increase the VO2 max, and then you'll be able to increase the slow component there. So it's important to note that the, the VO2 kinetics actually often interact with other parameters we might be interested in that can also be changed by the, by other interventions. Mm, yeah, and, that, and that's really interesting. And you mentioned there that one of the reasons for, uh, probable reasons for the slow component is uh, that we are recruiting more and new muscle fibers. Uh, could it have something to do with the, the type of muscle fibers that are recruited, for example, how uh, the sequencing of slow twitch and fast twitch fibers is uh, is recruited? Yes, certainly. So there's been, a, again, there's been a lot of research done on that. And the uh, the we also know that critical power is correlated with the number of type 1 muscle fibers you have. So the point at which the slow components behavior changes in terms of the exercise intensity spectrum uh, it, it appears to be related to your fiber type. And back in 1996, um, Tom Barstow and Andy Jones and colleagues did show that there was a strong correlation between the size of your slow component and the number of fast twitch fibers you have. So the more fast twitch fibers you have, the bigger your slow component is likely to be at any given exercise intensity. And that was one of the things that really highlighted to people that muscle fiber types are probably involved in this. And so also motor unit, what we call motor unit recruitment, which is essentially the same as muscle fiber recruitment, is probably involved in the development of this slow component. And it also highlights why training would be effective, because if you can train your type 1 fibers to be more fatigue resistant than they are, and particularly your, your what we call your type 2A fibers, the, the intermediate muscle fibers, if you can train those to be more aerobically fit, if you like, then that is going to significantly reduce the development of the slow component. And so doing training that's going to recruit those fibers, whether that be interval training, threshold-based training, should have a positive impact on the slow component. Yeah, that's something that we've touched upon a little bit in some other interviews, for example, with Professor John Hawley, uh, about training those 2A fibers to make them more fatigue-resistant. Mm. But uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you tell me what you think. From my perspective, what I try to do in coaching, for example, when, when I try to achieve that objective, is to try to maximize the time that those fibers are recruited. So usually that means uh, a high enough intensity, of course, so they're recruited in the first place, but it's not necessarily a super high intensity, more like a moderate intensity and mm. it could also be combined with like some higher torque or higher force work like yep. hill running yep. or uh, low cadence cycling and, and then just trying to to build time time in zone so to say for that moderate uh, moderate intensity where they will be recruited but not so yep. high an intensity that they will tire too quickly yeah yeah so i think things like mile reps are, are pretty good for that kind of thing so you can obviously build those up in terms of the number of reps uh, but it's a sufficiently high intensity that, that you know you can be 
fairly confident that, that that sort of fiber pool is going to be recruited at that point. So yeah, that's that's certainly something I would consider long intervals are the sort of thing you'd want to do there. Yep. Uh, so with what we know about VO2 kinetics, uh, how does that relate to warm ups and or priming, as you mentioned? Yeah, so this is something I did my PhD on, and um, it, it all kind of kicked off interestingly for, for me personally, uh, looking at triathlon. So what I was fascinated with was um, why it is that coming off the bike that you, you felt terrible running and why it's so you felt such such heavy legs and slow and that kind of thing and i really wanted to find out why that was and so i, I kind of put a dissertation together to try and look at that kind of thing and uh, in doing the background reading there was this whole seam of literature on prior heavy exercise and vo2 kinetics and that's what really got me into the field of vo2 kinetics i thought well there's something here that you know we can measure this thing we can look at how it changes and then we can try and infer what's going on in triathlon from this um the only problem with that was that the prior heavy exercise studies had six minutes gap between uh, one bout and the next, and that's never going to fly in a triathlon. So I realized there and then that I had to go down one or other path. I either had to look at triathlon or I had to look at the, the mechanism that underpinned priming exercise. Um, and because of the nature of PhDs and things, I chose the mechanism. So we started looking at some of the, the previous work that had been done. And what they'd actually done is they'd fit one curve to the whole VO2 response. So the fast component, the slow component, and everything else in, in it was fit with one curve. And what they showed was that the VO2 kinetics were faster in the second of two bouts of heavy exercise. So if you think about the first bout of ex heavy exercise being the warm-up and the second bout of heavy exercise being the performance that you're doing, there was clearly a change in the VO2 kinetics in the second bout. Um, and what they also showed was if you did prior moderate exercise, so exercise performed below the lactate threshold, that had no effect on the VO2 kinetics at all, which was really interesting because it meant that, well, does doing a moderate warm up do anything at all? Does that, is it, is it even worth doing that? Or do you have to do, you know, race pace type warm ups in order to get the effect? So that's what I was really looking at and trying to, to understand what the, the physiology was underneath that. And the first thing we had to do was separate the fast and slow components by essentially fitting two different curves to those, those components. And what we found was that the VO2 kinetics weren't any faster in the second bout. In actual fact, what it was, as I've just previously mentioned, is the amplitude of the fast component had increased. And that's just a, a technical way of saying that oxygen uptake rose to a greater extent in the first couple of minutes of exercise. And then after that, the slow component was smaller. And it, it's that balance between the fast component amplitude and the slow component amplitude, which was what was being effective or being affected, I should say. And that led us to think, well, if that's happening, uh, what's that going to do to performance? Because nobody had actually measured that before. They'd just done two six-minute bouts of exercise separated by six minutes of recovery. So we did studies where we looked at manipulating recovery duration, and we found that actually, you know, if you can do 12 to 15 minutes recovery, you still get the effect. So that might be better in terms of recovery from the first bout. And then so what we did was we did a couple of studies where we had 10 minutes of uh, recovery between bouts, and then we did time to exhaustion trials. So essentially, we just got them on the bike, pedaling around VO2 max, and go for as long as they possibly could. 
Uh, and what we showed in 2003 is that prior heavy exercise does indeed increase uh, time to exhaustion. So there's a performance effect. In a subsequent study, we did uh, a, a time trial type effort where we actually had uh, two minutes of constant load exercise and then five minutes all out. And the five minutes all out gave us our measure of performance. And what we showed there was that, again, prior heavy exercise increased the mean power output in that five-minute uh, performance trial. So, I'm sorry, sorry to cut in here, but both of these yeah. were with 10-minute recovery between the prior heavy exercise? Yes, yeah. yes, they were. So um, that that's essentially what we, we did there. And from that, we, we got some interest from British Athletics, um, and they wanted to try that with their middle-distance runners. Uh, and what we came to there was a bit of a problem. Not I, I didn't do this myself, but the, the guys at the English Institute of Sport did it. And, and what they found was you could sell this to uh, a coach and say, look at what this does. And the coach would say, yeah, but that's in cycling. And look at, look at the way that they've done it, time to exhaustion. That doesn't reflect what goes on in performance. So what they then had to do was do the whole thing again with 800-meter runners and do an 800-meter time trial in these uh, elite and sub-elite athletes. And they did their own study using our methods and actually found that their 800-meter performance was actually improved by two to three seconds which is big in terms of you know how far ahead you would be of yourself if you like if you were doing a different type of warm up and it was only that that convinced coaches to uh, to implement it and to my knowledge to this day uh, british athletics are still using that kind of priming exercise in their, their middle distance and long distance groups which i'm i'm personally quite proud of that we you know we've, we've kind of got it to that extent but certainly that's one of the things that one of the major interventions that came out of vo2 kinetics that's had a practical effect is prior heavy exercise or priming exercise um and that that was our work in the early 2000s that did that so two follow-up questions on this. First, what do you think that the improved performance is? What's the reason for that? And secondly, what does the priming exercise here look like? Well, so to get some actionable information for the listeners, if they want to go and do this before their next race, well, what yep. should they be doing? So if you start with the first, uh, second question first, um, when I've implemented priming in my own uh, work what i've done is essentially said to myself right i'm going to do a mile rep at race pace 20 minutes or so before the event so we know from work we've done that this effect lasts up to 45 minutes um the reason we go for 20 minutes is is that that's often in uh, normal athletic competition that's the the difference between being on the warm-up track to being on the actual track so that works but also um you 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 basically don't want to to have the priming too close to the to your event itself, which speaks to the mechanism that we think is underpinning the effect. So now if I go to the first question, the effect we think is that this increase in oxygen uptake in the early phase of exercise in the fast component, this is actually reducing the reliance on things like phosphocreatine and lactate breaks or, or lactate production, I should say early in exercise now we know that there is a finite amount of energy that you can get from those sources we also know that during high intensity exercise you will eventually use those sources up so if you like we call it your anaerobic capacity 
If you're exercising above critical power, you will cut into that capacity. And eventually, if you stay above critical power, that capacity will all get used up. And at that point, you either have to slow down or stop. And so what priming seems to do is reduce your reliance on that anaerobic capacity early in exercise, and then you eke it out over a longer period of time as exercise progresses. So eventually you'll use it up, but you'll just use it up later. Or to put it another way, you can maintain a higher power output for longer because you've primed the aerobic system to react more quickly at the start of exercise or or rather more completely at the start of exercise. You basically change the steady state target uh, by doing the priming exercise. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in what I've done for, for my warm ups and prescribed athletes is uh, typically to just tell them to go out and do six times 30 second seconds at kind of a VO2 like, uh, effort. And usually in triathlon, it's in the swim. That's where you do yep. your warm up and uh, try to finish the warm up 10, 15 minutes before, yep. before the start of the race, which is what's typically possible in, in many races. So yep. is, is that that is maybe a little bit less than doing a, a mile rep, assuming that you're not running a three forty mile or something. So, but yeah. but is that sufficient? Do you think or or yeah, should it be th- a little bit more? I think that it's, it's sort of you can you can you can get there in various ways. So we've also seen that if you do um, repeated sprints, uh, and you, some runners will call them strides, you can you can do that. And the key thing is that you want to elevate blood lactate concentration but you don't want to elevate it too much so um, we typically see the 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 biggest performance benefit if you elevate lactate to about three to five millimoles per liter now for most athletes that will mean absolutely nothing but that's the kind of level you get to if you're doing uh, say half marathon or slightly fast between half marathon and 10k pace that's the sort of lactate you'll achieve. Now, obviously, if you're doing priming exercise and then waiting 20 minutes, your priming will be higher than that, or, or your intensity will be higher than that. So, by the end of your first, or by the end of the exercise that you're doing, you might expect to see you know, relatively high lactate that then declines somewhat before you then start your uh, your effort, your race. But provided it's still elevated, and it should be for up to 40, 45 minutes after you've finished your your bout of exercise, that should then indicate that your system is primed. Now, that's not to say that lactate's the cause of that. We don't think it is. But it's an indicator that you've essentially primed the system and you've had an incomplete recovery from that priming, which should stimulate the aerobic system to switch on more completely at the start of exercise Mm. so does that also mean that you maybe should end your warm-up with that priming effort or the priming efforts and then not do any easy intensity after because the easy intensity might be a faster way to uh to clear lactate and uh, get get rid of lactate but you actually want it to stay elevated so so you basically finish your warm-up once you you've you're done you've done with your your priming effort Yes, yes, I, I would suggest that. Um, obviously, there's a, uh, a potential, I wouldn't necessarily say safety issue as such, um, but what you, what you don't want to do is essentially do a really heavy warm-up and then stand still because you, what will also happen is the blood will pool in the muscles. So um, what I tend to do is just mill around the start area, talking to people and so forth, you know, back in the day when we were not socially distancing, um, but mill around and just, you know, 
keep yourself relaxed and it's more once you've finished your priming exercise then you know you're you're into whatever psychological routines you have in terms of your own uh, psychological preparation for the race because you've done the physiology bit if you like and then you know you're ready to, to toe the start line at least that's the way i tend to think about it is you can compartmentalize right i've done my my priming the, the physiological systems are primed i can stop worrying about that now i can get on with thinking about how i'm going to approach the race and and kind of my you know self-talk or whatever it is you're you're uh, and your goal setting whatever it is you're trying to put in place in terms of psychological skills uh, that's where you can spend some minutes uh, getting your mind together really all right perfect uh, now is there anything that uh we can take away in terms of pacing uh, potentially from this discussion uh yeah i think the the thing about the, the vo2 response to exercise is that um what happens to your vo2 response and how it responds tells you a lot about both um what pace you've actually set in relation to these other physiological parameters like lactate threshold critical power but also how you husband your pace while you're doing it so the easiest one to think about is the exercise above critical power that if you exercise far above critical power you're going to have a very rapidly developing slow component that's going to cause potential performance limitation relatively soon at which point you might want to reduce your pace now in triathlon that's not going to be such a huge issue unless you're doing sprint triathlon if you're doing longer duration triathlon you won't be exercising that hard anyway but if you are exercising that hard you might want to take on a, a, a significant negative split so you have a fast start slowing down type strategy and then leave something for perhaps a sprint finish at the end whereas if you're doing uh exercise in the heavy domain we call it which is between lactate threshold and, and critical power there you want to have a slow component or if you're If you're exercising at that level, you want to try and minimize the amplitude of the slow component, especially if you're doing a race that's going to be significantly in excess of two hours. And for and that's because you have got a finite carbohydrate store, so in muscle glycogen, etc. And there, the bigger your slow component, the less efficiently you're using your energy. So um, when we talk with, with uh, marathon runners about negative splitting there as well and, and trying to exercise uh, with a minimal slow component so that you you don't essentially hit the wall. Um, when we're talking about very, very long duration triathlons, so Ironman triathlons and things of that nature, VO2 kinetics is much, much less of an issue because A, you probably don't have a slow component and B, the oxygen deficit phase is such a tiny fraction of your overall exercise duration. VO2 kinetics aren't really that much of an issue to those sorts of performances. Yeah, all right, perfect. And and just a note there for the listeners, when you mentioned exercising between lactate threshold and critical power, lactate threshold in this case refers to the, the first lactate threshold or the aerobic threshold, if you want to call it that. Uh, yeah. For listeners that might be used to hearing lactate threshold and thinking about the, the second threshold, which would be more uh, akin to critical power itself. That's correct, yeah. So uh, are there any other things uh, that uh, we should talk about uh, when it comes to VO2 kinetics? Anything that we missed? um not that i can think of off the top of my head no i think we've covered most most aspects there right yeah but but i think that the especially the practical takeaway here is the, the discussion on the warm-up or the or the priming mm -hmm. which uh, can be highly relevant uh, including uh depending on how you ex execute your triathlons but even in 
at least something as a like a half distance triathlon if you're trying to do a really fast one and you're co- quite competitive then that swim start is is really hard and of course yeah. for the professionals even in ironman the same thing really applies that that swim yeah. start is hard so so the warm-up there yeah. can be can be crucial yeah, so, I mean that's really interesting in terms of um, using warm up as a as a feature of a, a, a tactical feature to get yourself ahead of the, uh, the the swim field and and then you know not be kicked to death while you're doing it kind of thing. Uh, the other thing we've we've um, thought about in terms of warm up is is using it again for team games players. So you know to have a, if you like a fast start. If you manage to to score goals early in in the performance because you've done a, a priming warm up, um, that obviously deflates the other team, etc. And you, you can use warm up tactically in that way. So there's all sorts of interesting uh, applications, I think, to high intensity warm up. I should also point out that uh, pretty much everyone I've talked spoken to who's who's used priming in their warm-ups does priming in a completely different way to the, the way we started it they've just adapted it to their particular warm-ups so uh, i know for example there are some professional cycling teams that do perhaps a 45 minute warm-up and they might leave the priming to as you described for example some sprints at the end of what was a fairly traditional warm-up but it will have exactly the same effect so provided you've you've had the hard work you exercise above lactate threshold for a period of time such you can elevate blood lactate you should get that priming effect and then you can use that priming effect to whatever end you wish to uh, to achieve perfect now let's move on to critical power and uh, again let's start by defining what it is and then you can perhaps move into how it is assessed yeah, so critical power is one of the main parameters of uh, that describes the exercise intensity spectrum. So um, it is one of a cluster of different measures that, that define what we might call the maximal steady state. So as I described the, the, the behavior of the slow component, when you're exercising above the lactate threshold, that's where you start to see the slow component. So the first lactate threshold, as we discussed, Um once you get to critical power or when you're exercising below critical power but above the lactate threshold the slow component can be stabilized so it will reach an elevated steady state when you exercise above critical power you do not stabilize the slow component so the slow component will carry on rising until it reaches vo2 max at which point it has to stop because that's your vo2 max and If you exercise, let's say, 10 watts above the critical power, if you're on the bike, then you might develop a slow component which takes 15 to 20 minutes to reach VO2 max, and then you stop. If you exercise 20 watts above critical power, it might take 10 to 12 minutes to reach VO2 max. If you exercise 30 watts above critical power, it might take seven or eight minutes, and so on and so forth. And what you find is that if you plot all of your times to exhaustion, you end up with what looks like a curve that's that's shallowing out as, as duration increases. And that shallowing out, the critical power, is the theoretical point at which you can exercise indefinitely. So following that line down, you will end up with um, a, a duration of exercise that's essentially infinite. And that's just a mathematical thing we call an asymptote. But it's also supposedly a, a representation of the lowest power output 
above which you cannot achieve a steady state VO2 or lactate or anything like that. And, and for that reason, it's important. You may also have heard of things like the maximal lactate steady state, which is essentially the same point, but determined by the behavior of lactate. Um, you may also have heard of the functional threshold power, which is uh, a measure not dissimilar to critical power, but they're all essentially hunting for the same physiological point, the point where your exercise is no longer sustainable. And so the way we determine critical power, there's essentially two ways of two, broadly speaking, two ways of doing it. The first is to do a series of time to exhaustion trials at different power outputs above the critical power. And then you define the shape of that curve and predict where critical power is to extrapolate to the critical power. Or there's the three minute all out test, which is something that myself, Annie Van Hatlow and Joe Douse developed back in the uh, well, we first published that in about 2006, seven, where you essentially sit on a, a, a bike or you on a track or if you're running or if you're swimming and you essentially sprint as hard as you can for three minutes in total. And the idea there is that as you sprint, you fatigue and you essentially draw down your entire anaerobic work capacity. And once that's used up, the highest power output you'll be able to sustain is the critical power. And this actually speaks to why the, the so, so this three minute test is an overpaced effort. You you will gradually lose power as as the test progresses. Yeah, so you you don't pace it at all. You just pedal as hard and as fast as you can for three minutes. And um, and given that I was the pilot subject for this, it's uh, a horrible horrible experience. But it does produce some really beautiful data. So um, it's it's a, a really nice test in in the scientific sense. But it's a, a really um, not particularly user-friendly test because uh, it's a horrible three minutes. But then from a practical perspective, it's it's easier than coming in three or four or five times to do a time to exhaustion trial um, and, and then define critical power in, in the traditional way. It's probably worth pointing out that the critical power is only one of two parameters that we're interested in when we're determining critical power. There's the critical power itself, and then there's this thing we call the W prime. And the W prime is defined as the amount of work that you can do above critical power before you are exhausted. And so you have a, and usually, so that let's say critical power might be 250 watts for somebody who's reasonably well-trained, but not, not a, an elite athlete. The W prime will be an amount of work that you can do above that critical power. And it doesn't matter how fast you do it, you've got that amount of work to play with. So, for example, if you were to exercise at, let's say, 400 watts, and you've got uh, you know, a critical power of 250 watts itself, then you might exhaust yourself in two minutes. And then if you did, let's say, 300 watts, you might exhaust yourself in, say, uh six to eight minutes or something like that. But the amount of work you're able to do in both of those cases above the critical power is identical. And so that's what produces that characteristic shape to the curve. It, it declines very quickly at, at very high intensities, and then it gradually shallows out until you approach the critical power. That W prime is uh, it's called the curvature constant parameter, but it's also been related to the anaerobic work capacity. So it does have that relationship 
to your anaerobic energy stores. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but as a, as a, as a first pass, if you like, it's, it's probably worth thinking of it in that way. And what that then allows you to do is think about how you could pace your efforts above critical power. So, for example, if you know how much energy you've got in that W prime store to play with, then you can pace yourself effectively, not just in a race, but also doing interval training. So you could say, well, I've got this much W prime and critical power is this high. So I'm going to set my intervals up in this way so that I know that by the end of that interval training session, I'm going to have exhausted my W prime. And that's going to essentially be the, the most efficient way of doing that kind of interval training. So there's all sorts of things you can pull out of the, the critical power concept that can help you both in racing and in training. Yeah, uh, just a note there that uh, the unit for W prime is in kilojoules. So, so that's how yeah, you can basically you you can uh, exhaust that those energy stores in different ways. Two minutes yeah. going 150 watts above critical power, or six minutes going 50 watts yeah. above critical power, you will have expended the same amount of kilojoules there. In this yeah. hypothetical example that we haven't checked the math on, but uh, yeah, yes, yeah. So uh, yeah, and it's worth pointing out. I mean, I've, I've used 250 watts as a, an example critical power a, a typical uh, w prime will be about 15 kilojoules in uh, somebody who hasn't developed their anaerobic side i've seen sprint cyclists who've got uh, w primes perhaps 25 kilojoules but typically if you get somebody who's um, a, a trained cyclist but not elite they'll come in and, and they'll have a, a w prime of, of say 15 to 20 kilojoules typically is what you see yeah yeah and a lot of triathletes i've seen have uh, uh w primes that are lower than that uh, just mm, by the nature yeah. of long distance triathlon in particular yeah yeah uh so you mentioned there are some of the other uh, measures hunting for the same thing ftp functional threshold power and maximum lactate steady state uh can you discuss how critical power compares to these other measures what are the pros and cons of of different ways of trying to hunt for the same physiological phenomenon essentially yeah, so um, critical powers um, is, is the, the the parameter that I use most frequently. I have used uh, maximal steady state as well. Functional threshold power is not something I've explored myself, but I know other people have. And typically critical power and functional threshold power, and it does kind of de depend how you define functional threshold power, but they tend to be pretty similar. Um, what we find, though, is that the critical power and the maximal steady state often diverge. In other words, the maximal lactate steady state is usually 15, 20, 25, sometimes 30 watts lower than the critical power. Um, and it's always been assumed that that's because the critical power overestimates the maximal steady state. And um, I'm one of the people that that tends to disagree with that assessment because the way in which you define a maximal steady state is that you have to keep exercising or you have to perform exercise bouts until you see a non-steady state. And you might increase in steps of, say, 15 or 20 watts between tests. Well, that means that the, the, max, the true maximal steady state could occur anywhere between the, the steady state you've measured and the next step up. So there's always that level of error in there. And some of our recent work on critical power and critical torque, look, looking at it in terms of an isometric model, has tried to look at the 
confidence limits, we call them, around the, the critical power. So whenever you actually construct this curve, the data don't sit perfectly on the line. And so that produces an error in your estimation of critical power, which is usually around 15 to 30 watts, plus or minus. So when you say my critical power is 250 watts, well, actually, it could be anywhere from 230 to 270 watts because of this level of error. And when you take that into account, then the measure of critical power and maximal steady state and uh, functional threshold power probably aren't that much different. And our most recent work has shown, actually, when you exercise within those confidence limits, you get all sorts of strange responses in terms of the physiology. Sometimes you see a steady state, sometimes you don't. And it suggests that critical power isn't a single point. It's actually a band of power across which you're transitioning from one physiological state to the other. And that sort of makes sense because when you look at how your muscles are built in terms of it's you know, you've got various muscle fibers, they are acted, activated in various ways. They've also got various capillary densities around each fiber. So there's a lot of what we call heterogeneity. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot of um, smearing of different um, physiological structures and physiological mechanisms around that area. So you wouldn't expect any of these points to be exactly one watt in, you know, here's my critical power is 250. No, actually, it's, you know, it's somewhere between this point and this point. And I think that's where quite a lot of the confusion comes in that people say, oh, well, my threshold's better than your threshold. Well, actually, they're all pretty similar. It's just that you're not taking the error into account. And so once we've done that, I actually think, you know, in five to six years time, the consensus will, will start to coalesce around, well, actually, these are all telling us essentially the same thing. And it's really what you want to get out of it. So I, I would suggest if you're doing short distance triathlon or if you're doing 5,000, 10,000 meter running or you're doing you know, relatively short 10 mile time trials, you'd probably want to use critical power for that because then you get the influence of W prime on your performance. Whereas if you're doing very long distance triathlons or you're doing you know half Ironmans and stuff like that or Olympic distance triathlons, then perhaps the maximal lactate steady state is, is of more important to you because you want to know what that ceiling of the steady state really is. And you want to perhaps have a little bit of a, um, you know, perhaps a bit of a fail safe thing that you know exactly where that, that low, the, the highest part of your steady state is rather than um, tripping into the severe intensity domain, for example. So I think it's a little bit horses for courses, um, but you might want to, you know, use, a particular parameter based on what your performance goal actually is. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I was just going to say that, like, just the, the different um, ways of assessing these different measures when you measure maximum lactate steady state, for example, and you might do a, a thirty-minute series of thirty-minute time trials to to assess where mm -hmm. your steady state is. Then that can that, that's obviously something that can effectively be seen as a steady state if you're doing a race that is say like a sprint triathlon that you can yep. get done within under an hour because even if your lactate is rising a little bit it's not rising so much that that it's going to to hamper your performance by the end of that race mm -hmm. whereas if you're doing an ironman and you're doing it above maximum lactate steady state then that might be a, a different story so uh, so yeah the different they're basically basically tested on different time scales so that needs to be taken mm -hmm. into account so yeah i i would i think that's a 
a good way of looking at it. But um, when, when it comes to using a critical power in in training, for example, what what would your recommendations be uh, in terms of of that with taking into account all of the things you just mentioned with uh, the potential error and all well, the confidence uh, bars that we have around where your critical power actually is? Yeah, so if uh, if you want to do any training that's above the critical power, then what, what we would suggest is that you exercise what we might say two standard errors above the critical power, which, as I've already mentioned, that's essentially going to be something around 20 watts above critical power. If you exercise any closer to critical power, you can't be absolutely sure whether you're below it and above it. So, you know, if you want consistent responses, um, that's where you have to exercise. In terms of using the critical power concept for training, of course, if you have a pocket calculator, you can work out, if you know what your critical power is, you know what your W prime is, um, and, and you obviously have some means of measuring power or speed, then you can set some really quite specific intervals based upon the use of your W prime. And uh, Phil Skiba's work on the W prime balance model uh, has been used both in interval training and in racing uh, in terms of you know the tactical use of surging and things like that to know when it is you're you're actually going to use up your your energy store um, so that can be really useful in terms of optimizing your performance because you know how much you've got to give and as a result of that you've you've got the the ability to then the plan both your your intervals and your races around the, the critical power concept and what would you say about uh training at or just below the critical power if you want to do quote-unquote threshold training uh, what would the recommendation be for where you should sit within uh, that band of critical power uh if, if i was going to be doing that i would suggest that you um you probably start below that point and then the way i would uh, i would conceive it that you would um depending on the course that you're riding or running or what, what have you um you use that as the the uh, maximal steady state to start with and then you can push into the severe domain when you feel comfortable when it's required if there's a hill coming up or a drag or something like that but you also need to be able to kind of pair that back as well so um it's a it's a really i i always i'm a little bit biased here because my my old training back in the day was almost all threshold work so I, I just loved doing it i just loved the feeling of being right on the limit all the time it's not something i would necessarily prescribe to anybody because it's psychologically very difficult um but it it's it's something that when you get used to doing it that way it's uh it, it's it's really rewarding to do that that 30 minutes as hard as you can um and actually your body will tell you where it's at really you it's it's something that I can't give a scientific answer to this, but you can feel when you're at at that point. You, you don't necessarily have to say, well, I've had my critical power measured at 250 watts in the lab, so I'm going to slavishly work at 250 watts. You can basically set, let's say, 250 watts for the first five minutes of your ride and then do the rest off feel because you'll know where that point is then, if you see what I mean. So I, th I think it's it's also worth listening to yourself while you're doing this stuff because um once you're at that that threshold it's actually quite 
quite obvious when you've gone over your limit, if you like, and you can feel, you know, I'm, I'm pushing it too hard here and you can pair it back a bit. And I don't think you need to get too precious about that either, because the, if you think about the stimulus in the muscle, it doesn't really matter whether you're exercising very slightly above critical power or very slightly below it. The gain you're going to get is going to be similar anyway. So, you know, perhaps not get too hung up about being, you know, exactly where you are in that band because the body's going to respond in essentially the same way anyway. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good point. And uh, as you mentioned, it is a it is a band, and it's not an on off switch, but just mm. a gradual transition uh, and uh, in in how the the body is responding and and how the mm. muscle fibers are working and so on. So so yeah, uh, I would agree with that. What you mentioned there with yeah. your body knowing where where that limit is, where you can just about stay and sustain that power but it's very hard it reminded me of a on a, an old quote from i believe it is chris boardman that uh, said about uh pacing for time trialing that uh, when when you go and when you do a time trial and you ask yourself uh, can i sustain this like can i sustain this pace is this my my race pace for today the the correct answer should be maybe uh, it it shouldn't mm. be yes because then you're going too slow it shouldn't be no because then you're going too hard but it should be maybe yeah. you don't quite know and yeah, yeah. that's the, the the same thing basically with threshold training yeah exactly exactly uh, so you mentioned there as well critical torque that you've done in uh, more isometric uh, muscle contractions. But I was wondering, does that have any uh, applicability in triathlon training in cycling, for example, where we can measure torque easily? Uh, so, yeah, is there any application for that for cyclists and triathletes? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say there was because uh, the torque we're measuring there is isometric. So it's uh, and and it was. Uh, Again, it kind of comes back to the way my research goes is I have a I start off with quite a, an interesting practical question. So in, in this case, it was, um, can we determine critical power from a, an all out test? And we did that in cycling. And that's obviously had quite wide applicability in, in both exercise testing and and in cycling circles. Um, but I wanted to know what the mechanism underpinning the fatigue process was. And the the single best way of doing that experimentally is to do it isometrically, because then you you can measure very accurately the uh, muscle activity. You can stimulate the muscle electrically, so you can work out how much peripheral and central fatigue there is. You can look at the torque profile itself and see how that's changing in terms of the noise characteristics and what that means for fatigue. So from that perspective that was why i was doing that and so we ended up doing a an equivalent three minute all-out test uh in an isokinetic dynamometer using isometric contractions but we we realized that you couldn't actually get w prime exhausted in three minutes so we ended up having to do a five minute all-out test um so it's it's not quite as hard as the the cycling test although it lasts longer because you're only contracting one muscle uh, but the whole reason for doing that was to try and get at the fatigue mechanisms because when I was working with Andy Jones in Exeter, we had a very large bore Tesla magnet, which we can use to measure phosphocreatine concentration. So I wanted to know what was going on metabolically in the muscle. But the only real way of doing that is you can't cycle in it because it's not big enough, but you can do isometric or um, you can do uh, knee extensor contractions in it. So I was trying to develop an exercise test that we could then put into uh, essentially an MRI scanner to, to look at that. And so we, we've done that work as well. And 
So that gave us a lot of information about the fatigue that's going on in that kind of intensity, but it's not the kind of thing that would directly translate to triathlon, for example, or any kind of cycling, because it's not dynamic exercise and it's one muscle group. Right. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Uh, but what you mentioned there about testing, that uh, actually brings me back to a bit to the previous discussion we already had. Uh, for uh, the listeners' uh, practical uh, information, what sort of testing do you recommend? Do you recommend doing the three-minute uh, all-out test, uh, overpaced all-out test, or would you recommend uh, doing multiple uh, time-to-exhaustion tests or multiple time trials of, of different durations and, and plot the curve or calculate uh, calculate CP that way? Uh, I think, again, it depends quite what you're aiming to do and what your performance goals are. I, I would say for most uh, most people, and I'd in- include myself in this, you can probably get enough information about the position of critical power or maximal steady state from going out and doing a, a single self-paced 30-minute time trial measuring heart rate and speed or power alongside that. Uh, that will give you a, a close enough estimate of where that intensity is. Uh, that won't give you W prime, so you might be interested in that. If you wanted to do that, then I think the, the two options you've got are the uh, repeated times to exhaustion um, or repeated time trials at different power outputs will give you that curve shape, um, so you can do that. Um, if you really want to, uh, I think the... The consensus is that the three-minute all-out test, if you perform it properly, will work. And I have to be very careful about what I mean by properly, because if there's any element of pacing whatsoever in that test, then it probably won't work quite as well as you'd expect it to. So by not giving it an absolutely all-out effort, what tends to happen is the three-minute all-out test overestimates critical power which obviously has its own problems. But uh, when myself and Annie were refining this test, and, and Annie's done a lot more work on it than me subsequently, um, we, we have this thing where if you're measuring gas exchange whilst you're doing this test, you should expect to see VO2 max be achieved. That's one of the, the, the things that would tell us that a, a test is actually working properly. Uh, you would also expect uh, that there's no... Um, increase or no change in power output other than a decline to a plateau so if you see any lumps and bumps in the power profile that probably indicates pacing um and that if if you've if you've done all of that right and you get that that last 30 seconds of the test and it it seems fairly stable then it's likely that that uh, is going to represent critical power if i was if I was going to suggest somebody, if, if somebody wanted the the really, um, if you like, the, the most accurate way of doing it, then I would suggest probably still the, the, the most fail-safe, accurate way of getting a critical power is to come in and do four or five times to exhaustion in a lab and define the curve that way. Although I appreciate for most people that's not going to be feasible. And so if you want to go in and do a, a single visit lab session, the three-minute all-out test is the thing to do. But you've got to be prepared to have a very, very hard three minutes of your life (laughs) um, whilst that's happening. Um, And, of course, the harder you go, 
the more likely that test is going to be successful. So it's a little bit counterintuitive. You feel like your, your, your legs are screaming at you, your lungs are screaming at you. That's the time to really push through it and keep going. Um, it's, I've always found the hardest part of that test is the middle part of it, where you know you're nowhere near the end, but you're far enough into it to know that it really hurts. And that's where psychologically a lot of people often ease up and then you see a lump in the test and you know, and, and it's a horrible feeling as an experimenter as well, because you know you're going to have to ask that person to come back and do it again because it's going to be a failed test. And you know that halfway through. Um, so if you do do the three minute all out test, make sure you commit to it would be my answer. Yeah. Yeah. I've done several actually four minute uh, overpaced tests like that for a different test protocol and uh, yeah, totally uh, see what you're saying there. It, it's uh, quite brutal. Brutal test, but yeah, it's just something that you have to suffer through. Uh, a lot yeah. of people do measure critical power with uh, just two single points, two all-out time trials, essentially of of predefined duration. So, for example, three minutes and twelve minutes would be quite yeah. common. Uh, what do you think about that? And what would the potential error be in using only two points versus using, for example, four or five points, as you mentioned? Yeah. So uh, the problem with using two points is that you've got two parameters in your model. And so statistically, you have no degrees of freedom. So you will always get a perfect relationship in that uh, in that curve or in if you do it with a straight line, if you do it because um, you can obviously linearize it by looking at the work time model. So you plot work against time and that, that will give you a straight line. Um, so you have no measure whatsoever of the error involved in that that calculation so it looks like it's perfect and it might not be so if either one of those points is significantly off which you won't know if you, unless you do a third or fourth test then that can have a very severe impact on either the calculation of your critical power or your w prime so you always have to do at least one more test than the number of parameters in your model otherwise you don't have any statistical validity to what you're doing and The other thing to point out is because you've got two parameters in the model, if you do only do three tests, then essentially you end up with what we call a standard error of the estimate. So a standard error of estimate of critical power. And let's say your standard error is five watts, which sounds quite small. From a statistical perspective, what you then have to do is multiply that standard error, if you've only done three tests, by about 12.7 to get the true 95% confidence interval, at which point your critical power is now, or the, the, the band within which your critical power sits, is now a plus or minus 60 watts. And I would say that's probably not a usable band of power to be talking about. Whereas if you do four or five tests, then the, the degree to which you have to multiply your standard error is significantly reduced. So it's, it's down to, you multiply it by three, And at that point, your critical power is plus or minus 15 watts, which is much, much more manageable and more sensible in terms of what we know is going on physiologically as well. So that's why I'd recommend doing four or five trials, mm. is that purely from a statistical perspective, you'll have the most confidence in your model output if you do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, and really interesting to say that if, if we want to learn more about the statistics of it all, of the, uh, the error measurement and uh, the multiply, mu multiplying factors that you mentioned there, what would a good search term be to look for? What is the statistical phenomenon called? Uh, well, it's, it's based on, uh, the, 
uh, T tables. So it, it essentially looks at what you have to multiply any standard error by to get your, your confidence intervals. Um, I can't think of a particular resource off the top of my head that would get you there, but it is a, it's a basic uh, underlying statistical phenomenon with any kind of curve fitting that, that this happens to be the case. The more data points you have in your model relative to the number of parameters in your model, the better, because it also means that, let's say, a two-parameter model and you've got 20 data points, if the, the model fits the data very well, then you've got a lot of observations that a model with very few parameters that is actually doing a good job of fitting. And that makes it a really good model because you know it's, it's explaining an awful lot with very little. And that's one of the reasons why I like the critical power concept and the power duration relationship, because it can tell us pretty much everything that's going on above a certain exercise intensity um, from only two parameters. And that's really powerful because you can say, well, wherever you sit on that curve, I can now predict just by calculating those two parameters. Yeah, yeah, that's and and that's what a reason to use critical power rather than using, for example, maximum lactate steady state or uh, mm. FTP that you you have that yeah. second parameter. So especially in yeah. the in the severe domain, that it's, yeah. it is hugely valuable to to have that information. Uh, you mentioned. Having done work on how fatigue develops, uh, well, you did it in the uh, critical torque uh, experiments, yeah. but you also mentioned some potentially some other applications. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you have any more information about how that would occur in endurance sports in the different uh, exercise domains? Yeah, so we, we've uh, we've actually published a paper on that in the uh, European Journal of Sports Sciences uh, two years ago, where we we tried to look systematically at the fatigue processes within each intensity domain. And we the, the intensity domain where most is known about fatigue is, is the severe intensity domain. So um, the reason for that is pretty simple. The, you know, the, the duration of exercise at, in that domain is relatively short, less than 20 minutes. So you can get participants to come in repeatedly and, and, and look at various different aspects of fatigue. Um, less is known about the heavy intensity domain, although there's still quite a lot of research done in relation to carbohydrate utilization, things of that nature. And then the moderate intensity domain, we know a lot less about fatigue in uh, those intensities because the durations required to develop fatigue are so long and there are so few participants who are willing to volunteer to, for example, sit on a cycle ergometer for six hours and then and then be measured afterwards uh, so you, you, you need you need to I, I need to connect you with some people i know a lot <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so um so generally in the if we, if we go from from the bottom upwards what we what we find is that in the moderate intensity domain because we don't have really limitations in fuel store utilization because the intensities are so relatively low um what we tend to find is there's a lot more what we call central fatigue that's impacting upon performance there. So in, in essentially brain fatigue is occurring. Um, so that could um, reduce drive to exercise, reduce motivation, um, and what we call voluntary activation is reduced. So your ability to actually recruit muscle fibers very late in exercise is diminished, even though they might have lots of energy in them. 
your willingness to recruit them just declines. And there's also, of course, over a very long period of time, particularly if you're running, there's the issue of um, accumulation of muscle damage and and, uh, soft tissue damage as well, which can impact upon performance. Then when we go above the lactate threshold and we have the development of this slow component, that's where energy store utilization becomes important. So uh, in terms of husbanding your your glycogen reserves and carbohydrate supplementation, it seems to be that uh, a combination of that and if the environmental conditions are right, hypothermia could be limiting performance. So it's essentially there a depletion of energy stores and an accumulation of heat if, if the environmental conditions allow it. Um, and you know, also related to that dehydration, which is probably um, having a, a significant impact. And there are also um, central mechanisms involved in that as well. So we know that if you run down your, your muscle glycogen, you'll probably also run down your um, your blood glucose levels, and that can obviously cause hypoglycemia and all of the um, mental effects that occur alongside that, which is one of the reasons why there's a lot of interest in things like carbohydrate mouth rinse um, and you know, the effect that that can have on uh, your psychological state and therefore performance. So um, having carbohydrate receptors in the mouth that can then mitigate some of that central fatigue. Then when we exercise above the lactate, that's not the lactate threshold, the critical power, then we're into this domain where we're cutting into our anaerobic energy reserves. And This is where we have both the depletion of these anaerobic energy stores, so the the phosphocreatine, but also the accumulation of fatigue-inducing metabolites. So things like inorganic phosphate, um, adenosine diphosphate, um, changes in um, calcium signaling. So we also also think that when you do exercise, because you, you activate the muscle by pumping calcium into the muscle and then pumping it back out of the muscle repeatedly, um, some of that calcium can end up bound to inorganic phosphate, creating calcium phosphate, and that calcium can no longer activate the muscle. So we think that's that's one of potentially one of the major mechanisms of muscle fatigue. There's also hydrogen ions, which are produced as a result of um, lactic acidosis. Interestingly, we don't think lactate is necessarily involved in fatigue directly because what lactate is essentially carbohydrate that's been half broken down. So it's a usable energy source, um, and it often ends up being shuttled to other muscle fibers for use there. Um, The other thing to note, and this is something that Andy Jones um, found with, with his group a few years ago, is that prolonged heavy exercise... So again, exercising in the heavy intensity domain, so up for up to two hours, results in a reduction in critical power. So that can result in if you're exercising, you know, at the upper end of the heavy domain and you're exercising for long enough, you could end up tripping into severe intensity exercise late in exercise. And what they also showed was that you can mitigate that fall by carbohydrate supplementation during that exercise. So and by drinking a carbohydrate drink, if you're exercising that hard, you can actually blunt the loss of critical power during those types of efforts. So we also have to be aware of the fact that these parameters are not necessarily always constant. And so the fatigue mechanisms you experience, even exercising exactly the same power output, might differ 
depending on the duration of exercise you've you've been engaged in mm. and that might also from a, a triathlon perspective uh, because you've obviously got three different exercise modalities how do you know what your critical speed is in running after you've done a bout of swimming and a bout of cycling is it the same now there hasn't actually been a study done on that but now i come to think of it it would be a very interesting study to do to see if different modalities of exercise can influence critical speed in running at the end of a triathlon because obviously the running part is going to determine whether you win or lose so um yeah that that could be a, a really interesting avenue for future research and also the way in which you would mitigate any of those changes yeah uh, do you remember uh, off the top of your head what the degree of reduction in critical power was in that uh, study by andy jones in running off the top of my head no but i think it, it you, you'd be looking at something like 25 to 30 watts reduction if i remember rightly uh but uh don't quote me on that but that's the sort of level i'd, I'd expect to see uh that decline by uh, and they actually measured it interestingly using three minute all out tests because you can't do a glycogen depleting exercise and then do four bouts of exercise to exhaustion so you know they did repeated three minute all out tests at various portions of that um two hour effort and in, in actual fact what they did was they came in and did four different uh, efforts of up to two hours and then did a three minute all out test at the end of each of them um, so it was not a particularly pleasant uh, experiment to do but the, the data are unequivocal there is a reduction in the power output at the end of that three minute all out test depending on your your duration so yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. between so, five five or ten percent or so yeah yeah of, of that order yeah. uh, which is practically meaningful if you if you're pushing close to that level absolutely um, that, that will result in tripping into a different intensity domain yeah uh, so let's uh, finish off this discussion. If uh, you have any top practical takeaways, I guess, for athletes and coaches when it comes to this second part of discussion on critical power and uh, to some effect, the or to some, to some extent, the, the fatigue mechanisms, what, what would those be? Uh, I think the, the practical takeaways would be that uh, it's it's very useful to know where these parameters are and what intensity domain your your athletes are operating in both during performance and during training um, and particularly to know a threshold measure associated with a maximal steady state whether that's critical power or anything else but also to have some idea of the w prime parameter um, and its size because that will influence pacing it will influence interval training and things of that nature but also to understand that the fatigue mechanisms will definitely differ depending on which intensity domain you're working in. So we know for certain that there is a, a, a distinct difference in both fatigue rate and fatigue mechanism between heavy and severe intensity exercise. They are completely different. Um, there's less of a distinction between moderate and heavy exercise. But to be perfectly honest, if you're doing ultra distance racing you're going to be in the moderate domain anyway because you will not be able to sustain exercise in the heavy domain for as long as you need to so be aware of the fact that these intensity domains uh, are not just defined from the point of view of a physiological response in terms of the vo2 response they also have distinct fatigue mechanisms and you'll have to prepare for performance in different ways based on those so that, that's something actually that I should have followed up on more. Uh, you mentioned one aspect, which was the 
the carb, uh, the mouth rinsing with carbohydrates. But are there any other interventions uh, to prevent the uh, the central fatigue that you mentioned for the moderate domain? And uh, well, that was maybe in the in the heavy domain that you mentioned the, the mouth rinsing. Hmm. But but in those two domains, in the moderate and the heavy domain, what what would the interventions be to uh, to prevent or limit fatigue mechanisms? Um, I think the the, the short answer to that is we're not entirely sure um, because although we know that central fatigue occurs, it's very, very difficult to pin down a mechanism as to why that central fatigue is occurring or, or what the mechanism underpinning it is. If we don't know that, we, we really have no basis on which to recommend particular interventions. Um, in terms of um, drive and motivation to exercise, really and truthfully, it's if I was going to be recommending anything, I'd be recommending that you need to get your nutritional um, strategies sorted, both in terms of um, fluid intake and fuel intake. Uh, and, and for very, very long duration exercise, that can often be very different from what you'd recommend somebody who's, for example, running a marathon might do. So you might actually want solid food during the event um, to uh, fill your stomach and make you feel um, contented in that way um, caffeine is also another interesting intervention which uh, we know in, it's not really an exercise intensity issue but we know that caffeine doesn't do what we used to think it did because if you read um, books and, and stuff from 20 years ago you'll hear a lot about caffeine enhances fatty acid metabolism we really don't think that's a, a, a significant mechanism for the effect of caffeine anymore. What we do know is that it's uh, an adenosine receptor agonist. In other words, it's something that has a direct effect on the brain, which increases the drive to exercise. So caffeine as a stimulant, what I'd be recommending, and it doesn't really matter whether it's in the moderate domain or the heavy domain, um, I would I would suggest caffeine containing beverages are something that people should be using um, if if they're able to tolerate it um, during during performance. I certainly wouldn't, however, recommend taking caffeine pills or anything of that nature with a high dose caffeine because we also know that caffeine at very high doses can be uh, potentially dangerous. So, a caffeine containing beverage, uh, whether that be cola or coffee or, or whatever it might be, or you know. Um, Anything that you like that contains caffeine is worth ingesting um, because of the effects that it can have on the central nervous system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but do do take care with it not to develop your own. You know, don't buy a, a bulk load of powder because if you get the decimal place wrong in terms of um, mixing it up, that can have uh, you can end up in hospital with it basically. Mm. So yeah, uh, just just go with uh, if you like the real food options in terms of caffeine intake. Yeah, I, I relatively recently interviewed uh, Dr. Ali Ajmal, uh, who has conducted the most recent meta-analysis on caffeine in endurance performance. Mm -hmm. And basically the takeaway message there was three to six milligrams per kilogram yeah. body weight uh, an hour before training. But yeah. that's actually quite a significant amount. Uh, I recent, I raised actually this past week, and that's where it's speaking here. And uh, I went for the, the lower end of that, so three milligrams per kilogram body weight before the race. And that was uh, one uh, 
caffeine uh, tablet, uh, which yeah. uh, I got from a, an Infomed sport uh, approved yeah. uh, manufacturer. So that's yeah. uh, an option that I would recommend to people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd, cer- I'd certainly recommend if you if you want to do the the, the higher dose end of, of things, go for the the individual tablets. Don't go for the powder because it's just too easy to get the mixing wrong. It, it's the the amount you actually need to get three milligrams per kilogram body mass is a relatively small amount of caffeine actually i mean it's you could easily fit it into a tablet um so if you end up with a a pile of caffeine powder that you then put into a drink you're you're going to be in trouble yeah uh all right so uh, this has been uh, a great discussion Uh, let's uh, finish off with the rapid fire questions Uh, take just one sentence to answer these and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource related to endurance sports uh, I think the, the the one that always comes to mind is Endure by Alex Hutchinson. I mean, I know Alex very well, but uh, he really hit it out of the park with that book. And it's it's not directly related to triathlon necessarily, but there are so many uh, interesting things that he picks out there in terms of how the mind and the body works during endurance sport. But um, it's it's one of the best books I've ever read on the topic, to be honest. Yeah, I, I agree. And Alex is also a past guest of the podcast with, yeah. with that book as the main topic. Uh, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Uh, it took a long time to think about this. I, uh, I think my my main one is to try and think about things from different perspectives. So, to, to if you take the the mainstream view of something, to try and turn it on its head and look at it from a different angle and try and shake it up a little bit. Um, I've always tried to do that, and I've never written when I've written stuff, written papers and things like that. I've never tried to write it in the same way try, twice to try and keep my mind fresh. And uh, I've had reasonable success with that, I think. And finally, who's somebody that has inspired you or that you look up to? Uh, I'd say Brian Whip, the uh, the the guy who basically founded VO2 Kinetics uh, along with Carmen Wasserman. But he examined my PhD, and I've never known anyone as intelligent as him he essentially thinks or he's he's passed away now sadly but he think he thought in simultaneous equation and was was able to talk you through them while he was thinking them as well so he's a it was a phenomenal man so yeah he's he's a guy who still inspires me to this day wow uh so finally tell the listeners where they can uh follow you and uh, follow the work that you're doing uh twitter anything anything else that you want to mention as outlets Yes, so my my Twitter handle is Dr. Mark Burnley, all one word. And uh, I also have a personal page on the Kent website, uh, so uh, kent.ac.uk. And if you just, well, if you do a Google search for Mark Burnley, my name normally pops up right at the top there. So you'd be able to find me there as well. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing so much of your time. It's uh, been a brilliant discussion. And uh, yeah, I think that the listeners will really, really enjoy this. Okay, thank you very much. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, send me feedback. Let me know what you think about the interviews that that I do. Uh, I want to give a big shout out here to uh, Professor Andy Jones, who is a past guest on the podcast. I will link to his episode in uh, the description and in the show notes. But he is the one that recommended I contact Mark for an interview. As you heard, they have done a lot of research together as uh, Andy was supervising Mark for his PhD. So just wanted to give that shout out. Uh, It's uh, much appreciated when well-respected guests uh, recommend new guests for the podcast. It uh, ensures that the the quality of the podcast remains really high and the quality of the guests remains high. 
You can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com, where we'll have links to Mark's Twitter, ResearchGate, and university profile pages. We'll have links to Andy Jones' uh, episode on that triathlon show, which uh, is somewhat related to, to this episode. We'll also have links to several papers that on the topics that we discussed, including VO2 kinetics, uh, priming exercise, and critical power and the different fatigue thresholds in exercise physiology. On Thursday, we will have another Q&A coming out. And then next Monday, I interview uh, Professor Grégoire Millet, who is one of the world's most foremost researchers on altitude training. If you're looking for training plans or coaching services, uh, do check out scientifictriathlon.com, where, where we have tons of information about that. And if you need any more help with choosing or wondering what option is right for you, then just email me, michael at scientifictriathlon.com. Big thanks to our sponsors that uh, make this podcast possible, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15% off your order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Go and check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart, and keep loving craft on.